tonight's passages come from 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9, and 26 through 35, as well as Matthew 19, verses 9 through 12. Please follow along. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Hello. Maybe the two hardest passages I've ever preached on simultaneously. <laughs> we'll see. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. And I'm getting my podium set as usual. So I also, before I get started too, I, I want to change the title. I rarely do this, but um, I'm not a huge fan of it. So I'm just going to say singled out by God. So if you want to do that, that's great. If you don't want to take your marker and scratch it out, don't worry about it. You're not bound, as Paul said. Okay. So... Um, just so you know, I'm Sid Juin, I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Um, just to give a little introduction to what RUF is and isn't. Um, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve this campus and you all, wherever and whoever you are. And that means that RUF isn't for one kind of person. We want to be a place and a space for every kind of person. We want to be a place where anyone can come from any scene on campus or any personal background and feel welcomed. Uh, and that means wherever you are with Jesus or Christianity, uh, we hope that you feel welcomed as well. Whether you're convinced or unconvinced, whether you're a believer or a spiritual skeptic, 
whether uh, you feel more comfortable with none of the above or somewhere in between, uh, we're just glad you're here. And I hope you can feel that. Um, and especially if you're new to REF, if this is your first time, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for taking the time. And if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you. And I think uh, our interns, Maddie and Eric, can raise your hands, they'd love to meet you. And there's a plenty of other students that will say hello and want to meet you as well. So don't be intimidated, they're just being friendly. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, this semester, we're looking at the topic of relationships. And we're looking at it uh, through the lens of what does Jesus have to do with our relationships? What does Jesus have to do with our friendships, our families, our dating, our sex, our singleness, our marriage, his church? What does he have to do with all of those different kinds of relationships? And so for the first four weeks, we looked at the big picture, what I call the foundation story of our relationships. And then several weeks ago now, it was actually a while ago now, we just kind of transitioned and we began a smaller picture look at the different types of relationships that we have. And we've asked this kind of consistent question throughout all of the different types of relationships. What does it look like to remember the good, to acknowledge the bad, and to trust in God's healing for our families, for our friendships, for our dating, and then for our sex? Tonight we're going to continue the smaller picture discussion by looking at the relationship status that existed long before a social media profile. Singleness. Are you single? <laughs> Nearly all of you are single. At least how the Bible describes your stage of life, whether you're dating seriously or not dating at all. You're single, according to the Bible. And tonight, we'll look at a good look at your present tense circumstance, your singleness, what it looks like and what it calls for here and now, and then and there in the future. So once again, I'm going to speak about something that's culturally charged. That's this whole semester, if you haven't caught on. And it's going to be biblically subtle. And so I'm asking for your patience. Please uh, hear me out to the very end. You might be surprised. And I'm also going to ask for your kindness. Please separate in your own hearts and minds what I am saying from what I am not saying. Okay, please don't put words in my mouth, and I'll try not to do the same to you. So that's our, that's our goal together. Uh, but before uh, we look at singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Matthew 19, again, two of the most strange texts in the Bible outside of Revelation, um, let's go ahead and go to the Lord because we need it. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to pray. Um, thank you for the opportunity to, to trust that your spirit is at work in this room that um, we could get up, I couldn't get up and talk. Uh, these students couldn't listen without you being present, um, holding the very universe together by the words of your mouth, but also that you're here seeking us out, finding us out where we are, um, thankfully that just we get to be where we are, that you will meet us there. And I pray that's our prayer for this time, that your word will come to us. And that it will meet us wherever we are with you, Jesus, and wherever we are with school right now, and whether we are with the election, and whether we, whatever we are with all the different things going on that are important things. But I pray, Jesus, that um, you would shine a light on them, that you'd suspend, that you would sustain them. And I pray that you would be a, a relationship to us, that you'd be high and lifted up, and that you'd be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. We ask these things. We plead your promises back to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So I, uh, I grew up in the kind of family that made wish lists. Did anyone else grow in this kind of family? Uh, to this day, my family of origin, 
uh, whether it's your birthday or it's a holiday, they will ask for your list. <laughs> and they will stick to your list. <laughs> Almost everything you get will be from your list. You will not get your entire list, <laughs> but you will get nothing off of your list, typically. Okay, so um, in the Druin family, we also have this tradition where uh, we typically will give you a present or a gift that was purely for pleasure. Okay, it, has, it can have no utility, no value. <laughs> it's got to be a toy. It's got to be a game. It's got to be a piece of music or a book. It's just got to be something that cannot be useful 365 days of the year. <laughs> That's sort of our thing. Uh, my wife, Tears family, on their hand, does the exact opposite. They purposely don't make lists, and they give gifts based on functionality, on long-term, real-world usefulness. And so I'm going to give you a story to explain the difference and what I mean. Uh, it was the May of my senior year at Davidson College, and I was about to graduate. <laughs> Just to prepare you seniors, <laughs> it was a semi-stressful time between senior beach week and the actual graduation ceremony where you're kind of furiously packing your room together, and you're thinking, can I just tear this poster already? Um, and you're looking to get rid of furniture that you probably should never have bought in the first place. Uh, and Tyr, my wife, and I were actually dating at this time. We started a relationship senior year. And Tyr's family came down for the graduation. She was a senior at Davidson, too. I know, some of you. It's too cute, too weird. <laughs> However you want to be with that, that's fine. Okay. Anyway, we get the Valentine's Day email. Anyway, Tyr's mom pulled me aside sometime before graduation and led me out to her car. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> so she just said, come here. And I went back to her car and it was behind, in the parking lot behind Jameson apartment and the senior apartments. And we were walking there and she told me that she had a graduation gift for me. I have to admit, I was kind of excited. <laughs> you know, I had these visions of something really great, like a book or a piece of expensive electronics or perhaps the best of all, a card with a generous amount of money in it. <laughs> <laughs> that I could use for anything I wanted. <laughs> so um, we finally get to the trunk of her car. She opens it up, and she pulls out this like exquisitely wrapped gift, just like really fancy. And I was just getting even more excited inside. And I thought, worst case scenario, these are just really nice neckties that I can use for my new teaching gig. Like, worst case scenario. And so she insisted that I open the present in front of her uh, in the senior apartments, uh, or behind the senior apartments in the parking lot, and so I did, and I kind of slowly ripped off the packaging, never knowing whether to save it or not. People are different about that. Anyway, um, I ripped off the wrapping paper, and uh, it was the, the gift that presented itself was the last thing I would have expected. Tears' mom had brought me, ready for this, a carving set. <laughs> a carving set. <laughs> yes, it's a true story. It was a carving set for my graduation from college. It contained one giant stainless steel knife and one giant stainless steel fork with two prongs. <laughs> the kind of thing that you stick into a ham and you saw it. <laughs> I remember turning towards her, my, mother, my future mother-in-law's smiling face, and saying, thanks. <laughs> it's so useful. <laughs> I'm guessing you've had an experience like this at some holiday or birthday, no matter what kind of gift-giving family you came from. I mean, surely you've gotten a gift that you didn't ask for, a gift that you didn't want. You know, like the monogrammed towel, or the bad novel, or the ill-fitting sweater that itches, strangely, or the unusable gadget that is already outmoded. Maybe it wasn't on your list, 
Or maybe it was something useless when you wanted something useful. Or maybe it was something functional when you wanted something fun. But nonetheless, you've gotten that gift. In verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul calls singleness and marriage gifts from God to us. And for some of us tonight, being called to marriage seems like the gift we don't want. Or at least we don't want it until our 30s. Minimum. Okay? And for others of us tonight, being called to singleness is the gift that we pray we don't get. At least not for the rest of our lives. So I'd like to focus our attention tonight on the gift of singleness, obviously. And like my graduation carving set, it's a gift that is both unexpected, but also can be useful. That's my thesis, okay? So in 1 Corinthians 7, you had no idea I'd make that much of a metaphor. Most of you did. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Matthew chapter 19 as well, Paul and Jesus, that's the I of that second passage. Jesus is speaking, or the he, I should say. Jesus addresses and Paul addresses the loneliness and the behind and the love before singleness. And they're basically both saying that in these passages that singleness and its nature, singleness and its end goal boils down to three ideas. You can boil it down to three ideas. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 11, they're telling us that singleness is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 26 through 31, and Matthew 19, verses 9 through 12, tell us that singleness is a good gift. And third and finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 35, tell us that singleness is a good gift with useful, that is long-term, real-world choices. Okay, that's all in your outline, all the verses, all of the titles, all the points. So we're going to begin as we usually begin, even with two passages, we're going to look at the first verses or so of those passages. And the first point in verses 7 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 7 and verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 19. And then we're going to look at the emphasis of these verses that singleness is a gift. That's where we're starting. Singleness is a gift. Okay. So Paul is writing about singleness and marriage, for that matter, to a church in the first century in Corinth, Greece. I'm going to resist all the temptations to talk about Corinth. (laughs) Okay. But because this letter is preserved in the Bible, Paul is also simultaneously addressing us right here, right now at Davidson College. And he writes something pretty unexpected both to the first century and the 21st century. Inspired by God, Paul calls the relationship status of singleness a gift in verse 7. Jesus, God incarnate, also describes his words about singleness as a gift to be received in verse 11 of Matthew 19. So here's the thing. In the first century AD, calling marriage a gift from God or the gods was completely expected. It was even part of the Emperor Augustus's family values party ruling platform. He was all about it. He made statues about it. He made propaganda about it. Family values, marriage, rah, rah, re. In fact, they had the first tax incentive to actually get married and have children. Uh, in the Western world, one of the first. Anyway, I'll, again, spare myself, spare you. But calling unmarried and calling widows gifted, that was exceptional. Calling the unmarried and calling widows gifted was even surprising. Likewise, in the 21st century, whether you're a Christian or not, or whether you're talking about Christianity or not, calling marriage a gift, you've been doing enough weddings, is expected. Okay? 
However, calling unmarried and widowed people gifted, especially past their 30s, late 30s, is still actually surprising. But for those of you in your teens and 20s, which is almost all of you, (laughs) have you ever thought of your current life stage as a gift? Let me push you even further and ask this question. Um, Have you ever thought of being single for the rest of your life as a gift? Maybe that feels like a 22-year-old getting a stainless steel carving set in a parking lot behind Jameson. (laughs) But before I push into the loneliness of singleness, as well as its definite opportunities, I just want to ask a simple question. Why does the Bible call singleness a gift? It's an obvious but important question, I think. What are 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19 saying when they say singleness is a gift? I actually think it's a pretty loaded metaphor. I know that's not, again, surprising. It's, it's first, like, first of all, I'm going to give you three ideas. First, because it's a big and complicated gift, we can assume that a person's singleness, like marriage, has to come from God. So singleness has to come from God. It's a gift from God is the first one. That is, whether we're married or not, whether, it's, uh, whether we're married or not, it's not the luck of the draw. Okay? It's not some random chance. Or even it's not primarily the aggregate of your or other people's decisions. It is not your or my achievement to be single or married. Singleness or marriage is not a merit badge. It is not a demerit for being that spiritual or unspiritual, for being that successful or being a failure, or whether it's not something that relates at all to your relational ability, whether you're underwhelming or overwhelming as a human being. (laughs) It's a gift. It's not a merit. It's not deserved. Okay? Second, because it's a gift, because it's a personal gift, our relationship status actually matters to the God of the universe. Our relational status actually matters to the God of the universe. Your love life, or lack thereof, matters to God so much that he personally gives you this status whether for the short-term season like college or for the long-term period, maybe even your whole life. God is not some giant being with with a beard and slippers checking his cosmic email and waving you away when you start to bother him. I've just got so much to do. He doesn't ignore the questions that we oftentimes ignore that that well up inside of us. You know, like the middle school feeling questions. Sounds like a seventh grader might ask inside of us. The things that slip out late at night with one another or over text. The question that pops up in between the appointments in adulting. God cares to move our circumstances. He cares about those questions and he cares to move our circumstances to watch out for the affairs of our hearts. He's on it in regards to who we love. He's on it in terms of how we're being loved. But knowing that God often cares, that not just that he often cares, that he cares often requires inviting God into our heart's monologue, right? That eternal murmur of our hearts. We can invite God into that, that monologue by confessing our crushes, confessing our disappointments, confessing our romantic victories, and our romantic apathy to God in prayer. That's how we invite him to to be there. That's how we feel his personal involvement more. Okay. Third, the metaphor of gift. 
it only makes sense that a good God only makes good gifts. He only gives good gifts. I mean, I could give you first chapter of the letter of James to talk about every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Okay? But you got to understand, singleness and marriage, because they are from a good God, are good gifts. So singleness and marriage are good gifts. God wisely gives singleness or marriage to the right person at the right time. There's a mystery to that. Uh, and maybe some frustration. <laughs> Low grade. Remembering this kind of gift, um, because it, it's frustrating or mysterious, because this kind of gift oftentimes looks like or feels like a lot of romantic work to get married, for instance. It often looks like or feels like a lot of romantic avoidance to be still single for some of you. Okay? A friend of mine describes a decision like who to date or whether to marry the person you're dating like running at a full tilt sprint right at what you want at your goal with your hands lifted above your head, with your hands open. <laughs> like there's a sense of like holding your hands open to heaven and running at what you want. That's kind of what the description here is. We're making decisions, we're moving, but we're holding them loosely. We're trusting outcomes that aren't up to us entirely. And I think that's kind of what it's getting at with this, this relational status as a gift. It's a gift that we interact with, that we participate in. But ultimately, it's not up to us. And really, trusting that singleness, even at 40 years old, is good. Just ask Paul or Jesus. They were both single when they spoke those words or when they wrote that letter. They were single for the rest of their entire earthly lives. Paul tells us in verse 8 that singleness is good, not just for him, but for others too. Okay. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You're like, that's just all point two, Sid. <laughs> it's a good gift. Uh, but again, I'm ahead on my outline. It's okay. We'll make it up. My guess is that most of you are actually stuck wondering this, this eternal question. How do I know what gift I have? <laughs> am I gifted towards marriage or am I gifted towards singleness? Not just like, how do I know God is good? We'll talk about that later. But how do I know whether I have been given the gift of singleness? How do I know whether I've been given the gift of singleness? Well, here's the thing. Almost everyone in this room, except for some folks from Harp and me and Tyr and Anna and Tim in the back, are called to singleness. Okay? So with the exception of like five people, six people, everyone's called to singleness in this room. That is God's gift for you right now is to be single. Okay? Whether you're dating or not, whether you're interested in somebody or not, you're single. That's your gift right here, right now. But if you've been following along, that doesn't really answer your question. Right? You're probably wondering about the longer term. How do I know if I have the gift of singleness for life, Sid? Or to put it more simply, should I expect to get married? Or should I pursue marriage? With whom? When? How? And so on. Okay? Well... I appreciate that verse 9 gives us an angle of approach towards answering those questions. And this is what Paul says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Look, by the context before and after this verse, the passion and the self-control refer to this kind of deep intimacy reserved for marriage alone. Physically, we talked about this last week, that looks like sex. But then there's also this emotional and social and spiritual and mental intimacy that Paul's talking about here. 
And all this is to say, if you deeply and constantly desire sexual and romantic intimacy to the point of losing control, you're probably called to marriage, not to singleness. Or let me put verse 9's diagnostic in a more kind of everyday way. Have you found yourself more attentive when I started talking about sex, dating, marriage, and singleness? Was this perch your ears up a little bit more than the other parts of the sermon series? Not because of my preaching abilities, or lack thereof, <laughs> okay? But do the topics of romantic relationships and sex seem kind of life important to you? If not, you might be called to long-term singleness. Finally, let me close the how do I know discussion, how do I know, by repeating what I've said all along this semester. Um, so if you're not sure, here's the general takeaway. The vast majority of you have the gift of marriage and you will get married. I'm going to say that confidently. The vast majority of you have the gift of marriage and you will get married. You all can call me in like 20 years <laughs> and, and report back, but I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. <laughs> okay. Again, hear me, this is really important. My goal for you is not to get you married as soon as possible. Everyone, every time I say that, it kind of freaks out inside. Contrary to what some in the church have said, though, and they teach about this passage, Paul isn't peeved at you if you get married. Like, come on, you could have done so much. Neither is the God who's inspiring Paul peeved at you. In fact, Paul says later in this very same passage, in verse 28, it is not a sin to get married. Okay, so it doesn't mean you're like holier when you don't get married. Okay, Paul writes multiple passages, including this one in 1 Corinthians, where he's still single as exalting marriage, especially good marriages, as a flesh and blood billboard for Jesus' spiritual love for his people. Do you get that? He could not have written what we'll look at next week, chapters like Ephesians 5, about marriage and how images Christ with the church if he didn't think marriage was valuable. Okay. All right, this last idea about how kind of our present cultural moment and our insides, that how they can so easily lead us astray uh, about what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians leads us to his next few verses in verses 26 and following, and that kind of what he calls the present distress. So we're going to move to point two. Singleness is a good gift on your outline. Point two. You see, Paul's actually advocating that people like the betrothed, which by the way is like the worst translation. Sorry, I have to do this little aside. In the Greek, it literally means young woman or virgin. Does not mean engaged. I don't know why we have betrothed in there. Okay, it's just a bad translation. I'm sorry. That these unmarried, that, that's what Paul's saying in this passage. These unmarried remain in their present calling. Okay, he's saying that is we're to live in contentment with our present gift of marriage or our present gift of singleness because we do not know when Jesus will come back to this planet. That's what he's talking about. That's the present distress. I know everyone can go crazy in that in a religion class, but that's what it means. Okay? Our plan should be held loosely with a Lord willing. Because all of our plans for the future, and they're good plans. Plans for family or children. Plans for freedom to pursue the career of our choice or grad school. Those plans are not guaranteed. The only future reality that's guaranteed in the Bible is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is a certain, guaranteed future reality, but unfortunately, sadly maybe, we don't know when that's going to happen. But it could be any moment. 
Okay. And really, that's what the confusing idea of present distress is all about. And that's why Paul is saying, hey, savor the goodness of our current present tense gift. For me and my wife, Tyr, the directive is um, savor the gift of marriage. For a lot of you all, the rest of you all, arguably with the exception of a few, savor singleness. But why is the gift of singleness so good? Paul tells us later in verses 32 through 35, you, have, you get to have undivided devotion to the Lord. You don't have to be anxious about worldly things. You get to be anxious about godly things. That's sort of his argument. You don't get divided by the pleasing husbands or pleasing wives. Things like, you know, how to please your spouse or how to keep your family intact when your kids argue all the time. You don't have to worry about those when you're single. And perhaps it's just going to be helpful, and I don't mean this to be salty or bitter, but maybe it'll be helpful for you just to kind of like get a window into my life just a little. Okay, I'm going to do the best I can to describe what it feels like to be me. Uh, for most of you, you kind of go, that guy just sips coffee for a living. <laughs> he laughs really, really loud. <laughs> really loud. <laughs> okay, that's sort of your understanding of my life. Um, maybe you get some talks a long time. But um, consider what happens when I get home to my wife and my three children eight years and under. <laughs> okay. At home, my time is consumed with boo-boos and baths and bedtime. At home, my energy and my resources, my money spending money, is consumed with my wife and my three children's needs, right? With like trying to be emotionally present after a long day at work, or with making decisions about signing up for winter basketball sessions, or dance, should we do both, do we do one? How much is that gonna cost? Okay, whether to change our home insurance from State Farm to Allstate, okay? <laughs> and then trouble, when you have car trouble in both cars in one week, okay? Another, another situation. Or constant home and lawn care. And let's be honest, my backyard looks like a balding man with a weed comb over. It's very bad. Okay? At home, my talents are consumed with chasing children, catching up with tears life, trying not to fall asleep sitting straight up while my eight-year-old son reads me a book very slowly about baby jaguars. <laughs> These are all true stories. <laughs> I immediately get embarrassed when someone asks me about my hobbies, of course, because I have so few real legitimate hobbies. <laughs> Let me save you some time. Don't ask me what's cool in Charlotte. <laughs> I'd have no idea. <laughs> I only visit extended family there or children's museums. That's it. That's what I do in Charlotte. Don't ask me. <laughs> I know, again, I know that can sound salty or bitter, but it's not meant to you. God's calling for me is good. I get to love my wife. I get to love my children as my chief neighbors. Those are my chief neighbors, as Martin Luther puts it. But I say all this to point out that you have a lot more time and energy and resources and talents to spend than you think you have. Look, I'm gonna say something that's hard, but trust me, I know firsthand what Davidson's like. I went here, remember, okay? I remember and know, watch you, with you, it is demanding. Your professors, your club presidents, your coaches can be extremely unreasonable. They're fighting over your custody of your time. The secondhand stress of not getting left behind in other people's dust is quite frankly suffocating here at Davidson. 
There's stress Olympics and then there is stress decathlon and there's stress every event forever, okay? But I want to invite you to Paul's place of perspective. A lot of the way that you do what you do here at Davidson is actually optional. The how is optional, okay? You can actually just survive your hell week. You don't have to ace it or be it for that matter. (laughs) Look, here we go. Go ahead, give less than your best. That's not a waste of investment from your parents. Okay, talk to me afterwards, I'm happy to do that. And here's because I'm not your dad, I'll keep talking. (laughs) I get to tell you because I'm not your dad. You can do a lot more things during and after college than you think you can. You can have, you don't have to go to that school. You can go to another school that's less good. You don't have to get that job. There are plenty of other jobs in other fields that you don't even know about. You can spend timeless, purposeless hours on multiple relationships, including being still and knowing God is God. You have that time. I know that's hard to hear, and I know exactly what that feels like, firsthand and secondhand, okay? And so I'm just going to ask you a question. Again, embracing that position of perspective, what would it look like to pray like this? Lord, I'm willing to follow you wherever you lead me. Because wherever you lead me will be best for me. What would it look like to live in that kind of freedom? That is so scary. Knee-knocking scary. But I'm telling you, I've prayed that. Okay, married, I know, but I prayed it, okay? And there's this freedom because it gets at how actually free you really are in reality and how much we're prisoners of our own expectations and the expectations of others. Okay, straight talk with Sip. Okay, in addition to freedom, there's another reason that singleness is actually a good gift. Singleness pictures what true dependence on the Lord looks like. It's a picture, singleness is a picture of what true dependence on God alone looks like. This is a Catholic priest and single man uh, who writes just really honestly about his own life. His name is Henry Nouwen, or Henri Nouwen, uh, in the Dutch. In singleness, God will be more readily recognized as the source for all human life and activity. The celibate becomes a living sign of the limits of interpersonal relationships and of the centrality of the inner sanctum of God. The celibate becomes a living sign of the limits of our relationships, our interpersonal relationships, and of the centrality of that holy place, the inner sanctum where God meets man. What he's saying there is Jesus is asking unmarried people to create and protect an emptiness for God. That's really hard to hear. But this is what theologian Thomas Aquinas calls a vacancy for God. It seems creates a vacancy for God that's obvious to the rest of the world. Because remember, in heaven, none of us will be married. But as many of you know firsthand, this sacrifice of marital intimacy, you know this, is lonely. And it can feel just awful. It really does. But whether single or married, Christianity is just not easy, breezy, beautiful. Okay? Cover girl. Okay. It's not just happy juice 
that makes me smile all the time and promises absolute and entire life satisfaction or your money back. Okay? I know this is unpopular and it feels really unfair to say, and again, this is more straight talk with Sid, but Jesus sometimes disagrees with what we think is best. Jesus sometimes disagrees with what we think is best. He often asks us to prefer the good over the convenient. One area that this is clearly the case is what we do with our bodies and our hearts. And this is Matthew chapter 19. This is why I included this passage. Because Jesus' request makes this perfectly clear. He's prescribing marriage between a man and a woman and then forbids divorce on the basis of adultery. And I would also add 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, which we didn't look at, as another exception, uh, legal ground for divorce, which is abandonment. Uh, for instance, being forced uh, to abandon a spouse due to physical abuse. Okay, just some caveats there. Okay, when Jesus gives this view of lifelong marriage, the disciples say this. They kind of take it in and they go, if such is the case, it is better not to marry. Whoa, the stakes are high. Okay, and then Jesus replies by speaking about long-term singleness. That's what this passage is about. It's about lifelong singleness. It's about being eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Just to highlight how uncomfortable this image is, because I like doing that, no, because it's actually helpful. Okay? Eunuchs, by definition, have no functional private parts. Okay? And therefore, they cannot partake in the sexual intimacies of marriage. That's why he's using this analogy. Okay? So in verse 12 of Matthew 19, Jesus explains how different people are called differently to singleness. Like eunuchs, some people are born for a life of singleness. Their physical biology, their genetics, their brain chemistry make marriage, as Jesus describes it, impossible. Other people, like the eunuchs again, are made single by the actions of people in their life environment. Their lives make them unable, or they never meet a desirable spouse. And then there are the people who choose to make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Some people, like Paul or Jesus, live with unfulfilled desires in order to have undivided devotion to the Lord, to use their singleness, to love more people more fully with their time, their energy, their resources, and their talents in ways that they couldn't if they were married. The circle of chief neighbors expanded for those who are single. To summarize, Jesus is saying here, it doesn't matter how you're called to singleness. Nature, nurture, free will, or some sort of epigenetic combination of some or all of the above. What matters is what you choose to do with your singleness. What do you do with the bone-deep loneliness? What do you do with the abundant opportunities around you? And that's our third and final point, isn't it? Singleness is a good gift with useful choices. Singleness is a good gift with useful choices. We see this primarily in verses 32 through 35. There's an invitation there to the undivided uh, affection or devotion to the Lord. And I'm going to have a very obvious but honest moment here. Um, I'm not single anymore. I know, announcement, okay? I've been married for almost 15 years. I'm not single anymore, okay? But I can remember what it felt like. I can. But I don't daily long for the goodness of sex and life companionship, only to be told to wait indefinitely by God. That's what it feels like to be single. My marital status is not introduced at a church with a wink to anyone with a daughter. That's not my place. I don't know what it's like right here and right now 
to hear other people casually talk about my sexual desires dismissively, as if they don't exist or as if they shouldn't exist. So I'm going to end by quoting quite a few folks who are single um, who are, or who have lived that way for a very long time. And I want you to hear their and your heartache, as well as the ways that God can meet folks with that heartache and in that heartache. I've got a friend, Lucas. He was a campus minister for RUF who was single for a very long time. That's a very hard job to be single, as you can imagine. Okay, and, I, and he described the heartache of feeling lonely and how it feels to be told in the midst of saying, hey, I'm lonely, Jesus is enough. Here's what he said to that re- response. Jesus doesn't eat breakfast with you. Jesus doesn't walk the dog with you. Jesus doesn't spend a lazy Saturday with you. Another friend, Paige Benton Brown, also described what it felt like two months after her younger sister was married. And this is what Paige said. Her younger sister now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool, bathtub, and all new Corningware cookware. And she was jealous. <laughs> she wanted all of those things but didn't have them. Or I think of an older woman counselor in her 50s who I met in New Mexico State University, Pat. And I can remember when Pat sat there and told me that she has never had sex. She told me, I have never shared a bed and physically had such a connection. But as hard as it is, it's what Jesus has called me to. He has asked me not to have sex, and I trust him. In the midst of this frustration, the heartache of singleness that Pat articulates is the heart of the choices that you will have. And there are two choices that I want to end with. Will you trust God with your singleness even now? Okay? Will you trust God with your singleness? And will you choose to use your singleness for other people? Will you trust God with your singleness? And will you choose to use your singleness for other people's good? Okay, first, will you trust God with your singleness? I want you to listen to the way that Paige Benton Brown spoke to herself about her sister's marriage. It's an article called Singled Out for Good. Paige writes this. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her, her younger sister? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. If he fluctuated one quark in his goodness, he would cease to be God. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. It's not an antidote, it's an attribute. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single, because no good thing will God withhold from me. That's her words. In other words, Jesus died for us on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. Jesus, a man well acquainted with unfulfilled desires, tempted well beyond where everyone else gives in, that Jesus died for us to completely and irreversibly forgive us. Okay, hear me, he died for the ways that we try to meet spiritual needs sexually, and he he died for the ways that we try to cut down our romantic desires and live like robots.
both. Therefore, your singleness is not some stingy gift, even if you don't want it or you don't want it long term. Okay, my second question. Will you choose to use your singleness for other people's good? Okay, will you choose to use your singleness for other people's good? Look, maybe like the carving set I got at graduation, singleness looks like a bad gift on the surface of things. Because you don't know how to use it for other people. You don't know how to prepare and serve a feast with it. You want to know how the spirit of Jesus eats breakfast and spends a lazy Saturday with lonely people? He does it through other lonely people. Wesley Hill, called to the best of his knowledge to a lifelong singleness, Wes once wrote about ending an anxious dinner at an Indian restaurant by blurting out to his friend Charlie, could we talk about something before we head home? Have you had those moments? You just couldn't hold it in or someone couldn't hold it in around you. And Charlie said, sure. And he pulled off the road and he parked in an abandoned parking lot and then he turned off the engine. And then Wes proceeded to confess his feelings of loneliness and longings for love. And then Wes Hill describes how they talked that night until we got too cold. And then Charlie started the engine again and prayed for me and drove me back to my apartment. But after that prayer in that abandoned parking lot, Wes's friend Charlie did this really amazing thing that was just so natural and so beautiful. He reached out his hand and he squeezed Wes's shoulder and said, I love you and I won't let you go. It was God speaking to one lonely, touch-starved man through another lonely, touch-starved man. You see, Jesus used all of the time, all the energy, all the resources, all the gifts of his singleness here on earth to make us part of this family that's bigger than ourselves, a family full of singles and marrieds and widows. It's all we can do to unwrap the carving set and get to work slicing the roast beast. After all, we may struggle with something unique, but we are not unique in that we struggle. Yes, you are lonely, but so is everybody else. Jesus knows our struggles. He's been here. He's felt lonely. He knows I'm lonely in marriage. And he knows that he knows at firsthand what it is to need a listening ear, to need a squeeze in the shoulder, to need a promise of steadfast love. And he, was, he died and he was raised so that we could get the promise, so that we could get the squeeze, so that we could get the listening ear from God directly, but also from each other. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this talk. Thanks for the scriptures. They're hard confessions. Um, some hard talk about what it feels like to be at Davidson. Um, but I also just, I know that it feels like that. I felt like that. Um, we sit together in this, all of us. And I pray that you'd help us to reach across uh, in our loneliness to another's. I pray that... Um, we'd start building the kind of community that sits with people in empty parking lots with the engine turned off and grabs a shoulder and makes biblical promises that sound like God. I pray that we do that. I pray that you would remind us that you've already done that for us in Jesus. Wherever we are with him, 
And I pray that um, you would be with all our fears and all our insecurities and all our confidences, that you'd encourage us, that you'd draw close to us in the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our stress. Please, please, Jesus.